Our Bible reading comes from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, beginning at verse 1 through to 17. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest on all his, from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Have I not dwelt in a house from the day, of the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to, to this day? I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and when you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And in the one who... He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I re removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Thanks, Ben. All right, evening, folks. Uh, make sure you've got 2 Samuel chapter 7 open and turn to the person next to you and say, what's your plan? Actually do that. Uh, that's where we're starting tonight. What is your plan? What is your plan? For us, in this culture, in this moment, we are people who make plans. It's why lockdowns are so annoying to us. We are not the people who say every time there's a lockdown, ah, oh, didn't really notice four months at home. We are the people who, as soon as the lockdown is announced, get out our red pen and go up to our calendar, or get out your phone and start, 
just deleting stuff. That's cancelled and that's cancelled and that's cancelled. And can I say, I know for some people that's actually a relief when a whole lot of stuff is cancelled. But the reason it's a relief is because you plan. You plan to do stuff. And we have dreams and plans of a future. We have a privilege in that we're actually able to do both dream and plan. So we have financial plans and dreams. For many of you, that involves crypto, and that will not go well. But that's okay. We have educational plans and dreams. We have relational plans and dreams. I know some of you have engagement timelines that you have stretched out in front of you. We have vocational plans and dreams. We have plans for this week. We have plans for next week. We dream of having plans for Christmas. We're going to have plans for next year. And suddenly we're all feeling very tired. And I want to say it's good to plan. Planning is something that is actually important. It's part of adulting. But I also want to suggest this, that if your plans for you don't take into account God's plans for you, then your plans will be about as useless as fly screens on a submarine. And there's every chance, if that's the case, that you will miss the joy of the kingdom of God. So tonight as we open up 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to contemplate this. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 is going to help us see three things tonight. Uh, First one is God's plans are always better. God's plans, secondly, are always bigger. And God's plans are built to last. So let's get stuck in. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Maybe have your Bible open. It'll be on the screen as well. Chapter 7, verse 1. And we see David again, a man with a plan. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now I can understand why David would have such a musing, can't you? He's settled in a palace. The Lord has given him rest from all his enemies. Things are going well throughout Israel and all is well for him in the kingdom. And I picture David sitting in his palace of cedar and he's sort of just next to a curtain and he looks out past the curtain to what is literally in this, in verse 2, there is the ark of God surrounded by curtains. The very ark he danced over. The very ark he celebrated over, the very ark he humbled himself before, sits there humbly surrounded by curtains while he's in a palace. And so he says this to Nathan and the prophet says back to him in verse 3, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Now, I hope that you've read enough of 2 Samuel now to know that when you see what has been said there, that we've got a serious problem. And do you see what's emphasized in verse 3, the very start of verse 3? It is, whatever you have in mind, David. But we know that when David makes plans without inquiring of the Lord, uh, the dramas regularly follow. And what we have here is two men of God, a one who we've been told the Lord has been with and we're told again, but they're following their instincts. They're following their intuitions. They're following what's in their own minds. 
rather than doing the one thing that we've seen David do successfully and unsuccessfully time and again. That is to listen to the word of the Lord. Fortunately for David and graciously, the word of the Lord is given. And indeed, the reality of the necessity of David actually hearing this word is underlined sort of four times in the next two verses. We see verbs of speaking. Look from verse four. Uh, But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. God intervened to divert their course. In verse 17, we're told this whole section here is a revelation of God's heart and mind, as if God is saying, when you make plans, David, come and listen. Come and listen. Come and listen. Come and listen to me as you make your plans, for God's word needs to govern their thoughts and plans rather than their inklings or their ideas, whatever's in their mind. And it's in this that I hear a warning for us. And it's this. That even God's best servants can miss God's plans if they don't go to God's word first. And if David needed God's word, how much more do God's lesser servants like me need the word of God to guide my every step and plan. I would be a fool to think that I can work life out on my own. God's plans are always better than my plans because God sees and knows all, whereas I only know what I see. And let me assure you, I could tell you a hundred stories of the way that I've got it wrong by following my instincts like this one time that Tim referred to before, where I convinced myself that entering a pub on a fake ID was worth it to make the most of an evangelistic opportunity. And you can tell me later what you might have done if you're in my situation. Feel free to tell me what you have done in your situation. Friends, responding rightly to God is the most important thing that you can do in life. But our instincts and our intuitions mislead us. We're often incapacitated by our own ideas and our own obsessions and certainly by our sinful minds and our sinful hearts. You see, to honour God by building a majestic house for the ark, that was David's plan, but God's plan was different and better. And God revealed it by his word. And friends, how much more and how much more often do we need a word of the Lord to discern the right thing to do, the right path to follow? How do we work that out without a word of the Lord? And perhaps more importantly, where might we find a word of the Lord? Just there. Incredible. See, I know many Christian people, and they're making plans, will ask God for wisdom, they'll pray. But at the moment they pray, they then somehow weirdly expect that it's going to come through some mystical cranial implantation. So they pray and wait with their Bible closed. 
The very Bible that is revelation from God. The very Bible that is the Word of God. The very Bible that is the sword of the Spirit. Friends, when you're making plans, pray for wisdom and pray with your Bible open. Read it. Listen to God. See what he has to say about the situation that you're in. For here, God reveals the most important words in the world. And through these words, he will shape your inklings. He'll shape your intuitions. He'll shape your thoughts and ideas and instincts so you might be more and more like Jesus. And your capacity to honour him will always be linked with your willingness to be obedient to his word. Don't simply trust your instincts and intuitions. Trust the word that reveals the heart of the God who loves you. So David learns that God's plans are better. He needs a word from God. But when that word comes, he also learns next that God's plans are bigger have a bigger horizon than his mind could even imagine for. Not only does he get a word, but he gets a word that expands his horizons. Now, what David wants to do is provide a place for God. That's his plan that is geographical. But what God helps him see is that God's place in the world is actually always relational. Where God's people are, there God is with them. So look with me from verse 6. We're still in 2 Samuel chapter 7 from verse 6. God says through Nathan the prophet, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? There's a whole lot of words there in that verse, right? It just sort of keeps going on and on and on. I've never, ever, 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 ever said, God says, I've never said, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's never been part of God's plan. Again, verse 9, I have just been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Just in those verses, there's just a gentle rebuke of David's intentions. But it's beautifully surrounded by this theology of the presence of God. God says to David, I've not dwelt. I've not been in a place. I've been on the go. I've been walking around. I've been going backwards and forwards. God's priority has been his people and God's presence has not been in a fixed location, uh, but rather wherever they went, he would go in their midst, traveling with them through joy and sorrow, through strife and wonder. And this was God's plan. You see, the end of verse 7, God's never asked for anything else. He wanted a tent that could be put down and put up as quickly as possible that that he and his people could move on. So from the powerful moment of the Exodus through the many occasions when God has protected and rescued and provided for his people all the way to David's day, a tent was all God required because being present with his people is God's priority. Portability is more important than permanence. So a tent is the best place for a God on the move. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, ha ha! And I have read ahead, Nigel. 
And I know that in just a couple of books' time, I think it's one king's you're saying in your mind, that God is going to get Solomon to build a whopping great temple. It's going to be gold. It's going to be bricks. It's going to be a place. It's going to be amazing. So what, what's the deal with that? Why are you saying God's portable, but then he's going to build this whopping great house? And I'll say back to you, aha! The circumstances around the building of the temple are very different to the circumstances that David is encountering at this point in time. Uh, have a look with me at 1 Kings chapter 5 from verse 3. Uh, where Solomon says, You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's no adversary or disaster. So I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David. You see, it was when there was complete rest for God's people, when every adversity had been destroyed, when no disaster could come upon them, on those people of God, that God chose a dwelling place among the people so they could dwell with him. It was only when there was no more death or mourning or crying or pain among his people, when the adversaries of God had passed away, that God's temple would be built in all its splendor there in their midst. But do you know what happened with that temple? Do you know what happened with that king? Well, tragically, owing to the sin of Solomon, the sin of all who followed, that peace did not last The adversaries of the people of God did not stay away. Solomon was a wise man, but he did not stay faithful to the word of God. And he was led astray, leading God to literally de-temple the temple. In the book of Ezekiel, there's this scary image where you actually see the glory of God lifting up from the temple as if God is saying, this is no longer the place I'm going to be. I'm no longer with you. And he actually goes to dwell with his people by the rivers of Babylon. Because God's priority is to be with his people when there is no rest. And friends, that is still the case today. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered our world to be Emmanuel, God with us. He came into the world and John chapter 1 verse 14 says, he literally tented among us temporarily, in a body. He is the same one who now has promised us that when two or three gather together, he will be with you. He he is the same one who's promised in Matthew 28 uh, that he will be with us to the very end of the age. He is the same one who by his spirit dwells in us and with us now, uniting us to him and uniting us to him for eternity. For in these days, your day and my day, when there is no rest, God still prioritizes people and portability in the person of the Spirit. And I find that remarkably astounding. That the God who would not rest until he gave his people rest, the God who traveled closely with his people daily, still travels close with me daily by his spirit, preparing me 
for that final rest around his throne when indeed there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have completely passed away. So here's the thing about your God. The God you've come here tonight to worship, perhaps for you, if you've come for the first time, the God you've come to know, this is the thing about this God. He created the universe in all power and majesty. As we saw last week, we should live in awe of him. But here is the other reality. He is closer than a friend. He is nearer than your hands. He is more present than your thoughts. And as you trust Christ, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And I find that incredible comfort for each day. No matter what I encounter, good or bad, he is with me by his spirit. In the most difficult moments, he remains with me by his spirit. In my deepest troubles, he remains with me by his spirit. And he is not disappearing. And this is why Christians ought not get so pent up about buildings and spaces where we gather and what a building is like where you gather for church because God's place is always relational and he'll remain with you by his spirit. That we gather together is critical, but God is not in here. We haven't come here tonight to actually see God and go, wow, like he's a caged animal. That's amazing. No, he is in you. And he is working bigger plans and more glorious plans and temples and places. He is making you more like Jesus every day of the week, bearing his fruit for his glory. And he's not constrained by geography. Uh, he says here that his plans and his vision for the world is bigger and bigger again, as David is about to find out. So thirdly, uh, God's plans are always built to last. David wanted to build a house for the Lord. But he's about to find out that the Lord has a plan to build a house, a dynasty, a legacy, a family for him. And that that family will last forever. Uh, look with me from verse 8. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 from verse 8. And we read, Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning." And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people. And I will also give you rest from your enemies. It's like suddenly God is laying out this litany of things, this list of things that he has done for David. And he's going to do through and in David. I took you from pasture. I appointed you as ruler. I've been with you the whole time. I've cut off your enemies. And now I'm going to make your name great. 
I'm going to provide a place for my people. I'm going to plant my people and give them rest and bless them where they are. And as I was reading through this during the week, I'm sort of thinking to myself, where's this come from all of a sudden? David hasn't been all that crash hot through 2 Samuel so far, and now God is making massive promises to him, big calls, and it all finishes in verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, and that house will be forever. So what exactly is going on here? Well, what's going on here in 2 Samuel 7 is that God is unveiling the next crucial chapter in his story in his plans for the world. You see, despite its complexity, the Bible is just one single story of God's relationship with his people. You actually read the Bible, it's just one story of God's relationship with his people. And here is its starting point. It starts with, he creates us and loves us and we ignore him and despise him. That's the intro to the book. You sort of wonder, what's going to happen now that the people of the world despise the one in charge of the world? This cannot go well. However, here's the main storyline. God does not take no for an answer. And he commits himself to bring us back into full and perfect relationship with him. And the Bible is the story of how that actually happens. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a key part of the story. How is it that God is going to restore us back into relationship with him? Well, God says, through you, David, through your house, through your line, through your offspring, I will make your name great, verse 9. In verse 10, I will provide a place for my people. Verse 11, I will provide you with peace and rest and bless you forever. Now, here's the interesting thing. They're big promises but they're not the first time we've heard these promises. These promises actually point us back to and connect us with God's plans for the world that were begun in Abraham. Uh, were we to open up Genesis chapter 12, the 12th chapter of the whole Bible, read verses 1 to 3, we're going to read that God says to Abraham, through your offspring, I will make your name great. I will provide a place for my people and I'll provide you with peace and rest and blessing." God has already promised to establish an everlasting relationship between Abraham and his descendants. And so as we've been reading the Bible, if you picked up your Bible and, and got to chapter 12, you'd see chapter 12, you'd start thinking, right, who is this offspring of Abraham who's going to bring blessing for the whole world? And that's the question you'd be asking as you're reading through the Bible from Genesis 12 into Exodus and all these complicated books in the Old Testament. It's just one simple question. Who is this offspring of God who is going to bring blessing to the entire world? world as we get to 2 Samuel 7 we go ah perhaps it's David perhaps David is the one because God has said I'll make your name great I'll provide a place for your people I will give you a place of peace and rest but what we see in 2 Samuel 7 is that God's plans are bigger and built to last and David is central to the future but God's promise will not be fulfilled in his lifetime but in the life and times of one who is both son of David and son of God. And so this is what God says from verse 12. He says, when your days are over, David, and you're in a grave, you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, 
and I will establish his kingdom and he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You see, God's promising here in 2 Samuel 7 is not going to be David, but there's still someone to come. And that person's throne, someone in the line of David, their throne and kingdom will be established forever. This offspring of David, this son of David, this son of God will rule forever. So we get to 2 Samuel 7, we've got another question. Can who might this be? The one who will have the blessing of Abraham and will be a son of David, a son of God whose kingdom will rule forever. We've got a clearer picture of who this person is now and we're looking. Who is it who will be the focus of God's built-to-last plans? And the first answer is obvious. It's David's son, Solomon. He is the offspring of David. He builds a house for God. He builds a temple for God's name. He is the one who God declares to be his son in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. So the first answer is probably Solomon. But as we keep reading the story, we see that he is a failure. And the kingdom fractures in two and it does not last forever. And he is punished by God. And so is every successive offspring in the line of David. And none of them last forever. And so we're left asking, who is the son of David? Who is the Son of God? Who is the focus of these permanent plans of God? Whose throne is forever? Whose kingdom rules over all? Who is the forever king from whom God's love will never be taken away? Who is the focus of all of God's plans and all of God's attention through all of time? Who is the one who will be given all authority and power in heaven and on earth? Who is this king? And when we open the very first page of the New Testament, we find our answer. The very first words of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read, This is the genealogy of... Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Jesus is the one who is the focus of all God's promises from the beginning. And just two chapters later, in chapter 3, verse 17, a voice comes from heaven and it says, This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Friends, Jesus is the one whose throne rules forever. Jesus is the son of David whose kingdom rules over all. Jesus is the forever king from whom God's love will never be taken away. Jesus is the one given all authority and power in heaven and on earth. And Jesus is also the one who 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin. For us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Indeed, he did no wrong, but was counted as sin for us, that we might be counted right with God. And so 2 Samuel 7 is like an enormous arrow that is just again pointing to this reality. God had a plan from the beginning of time to make his son, Jesus, the son of David, the forever permanent king of the world, the forever permanent king of you. And there is no one greater. And there is no one mightier. And there is no one with more authority. And there is no one with more power. And there is no one with more love for the world than the king who is at the center of all the built-to-last plans of God. And the name of that king is Jesus. And he is drawing people to himself for an eternity around his throne that is incomparable to anything, anything the world has to offer. And yet we go about our little lives, making our little plans, all our little things, thinking that no one has any greater authority over me than me. And we go about our little lives, making our little plans, thinking that no one has more love for me than me. Who's really in charge? Who really has the power? Who really rules the world? I'll give you a tip. You've never seen them in a mirror. So tonight, friends, I want to ask you this. Step back and consider your plans. What needs to change in light of God's plans for the world in Jesus? What what should you be doing with your life and your time in light of the forever plans of God for the world through Jesus? What should you be doing with your money in light of the forever plans of God for the world in Jesus? What should you be doing with your mouth and what words should more often come out of your mouth in light of the forever plans of God for the world through Jesus? The implications of Jesus' kingship that is forever go on and on because the authority of Jesus and the kingdom of God go on and on and in the end will be all in all. The authority of Jesus is over everything that you think and do and will ever plan. So I ask you tonight, consider your plans. Are your plans being made in light of God's plans for you and for his world? Or are you somehow building your own kingdom, your own palace, your own temple, as if somehow you'll be fine? Because if you're not making plans in light of God's plans, you might just find yourself on the wrong side of the kingdom or the wrong side of the king. And let me assure you, that is not a place anyone 
wants to be. How about we pray? Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is king over all things, over the smallest of our decisions, over the biggest of our decisions, over the things that trouble us and the things that don't trouble us, over every moment and that he sees all and knows all. Lord, we recognise that we only know what we can see. And so we pray that you would help us to live our lives in obedience to you and your word, in light of you and your plans, for you and for your glory alone. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, uh, you will not be looking forward to these questions because we've got everything from the Trinity to the Incarnation to prophecy and personal prophecy, like God speaking to me directly. So I'm asking you the questions? And a question from your daughter, which I'll leave <laughs> for you to answer on so an extra. extra. Yeah. Let's get into it. Erin asks a question on Slido. She says, as a tricky one for you, but I'm looking forward to your answer on this. Are you think I'm um, kind to me? I'm not. I've picked the easiest ones possible. <laughs> Oh, it's just disappeared. Aaron, where did you go? There you are. Uh, how can God say, my love will never be taken away from him? I mean, he's talking about Jesus, mm. the prophecy, when God actually does abandon Jesus on the cross, even though temporarily. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think when we look at the cross and what's happening at the cross, uh, you hear Jesus quoting the words from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there is a reality there that uh, God actually is punishing Jesus for the sins of the world and uh, forsaking him. Now, what does forsaking mean? I'll tell you what it can't mean. At the cross, God didn't rupture. What I mean by that is God exists eternally as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. At the cross, the Spirit and the Father did not go, woo, we're standing over here, you go over there, and we'll have you back in a minute. God cannot rupture. He exists as three persons eternally. So we actually need to hold in tension these two ideas, that the Bible teaches us that God exists in three persons eternally, and that God the Father forsook God the Son. So that that existence itself there is unable to be ruptured by this reality and the love that they have one for another as God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit uh, is not able to be ruptured by that forsakenness. So somehow what we have at the cross is the wrath of God meeting out, being meted out to someone who he loves. And I'll tell you how this sort of works. It, it works because, again, we need to hold in tension this. How many fingers? You guys are great. Yeah, that's right. So how many fingers out there can you see? How many timbers fingers can you see, Tim? One. One. Same time. Whoa. Tricky. Now, just Whoa. imagine that there's no parallax error. How many fingers do you see? How many fingers, Tim? Three. At the same time. Amazing. But now, I share that little thing with you because it's actually... I find that, I'm a simple guy, I find that a really helpful illustration that just keeps reminding me of what God is like. That God didn't actually mete out punishment to someone else. God actually meted out the punishment for sin to himself in the person of the Son. And so God doesn't stop loving himself in that process either. So you have to hold together the Trinity, 
the three persons of the Trinity, the one person of the Trinity, the love between the Trinity and the forsakenness and sin of the world, and that all of that takes place inside the dynamic of God without God ever rupturing or busting apart. Because if God ruptured or busted apart, none of it would work. That's the complexity of God. And sometimes in theology, as we're thinking, we just need to hold things in tension that don't feel like they're going to go together, but in the end they do, and they will, because God sees all and knows all, and we all only know what we see. Anyone else's mind just bend a little bit? Mine did. That was yeah. awesome. I'm going to steal that for the future. Um, that's an awesome thing about our great God. Uh, and that sort of leads into this question, which is in this passage we saw someone have a, a revelation from God. Nathan had that there. Uh, is it wrong for us to pray for those or hope for those sp- spiritual revelations when we're thinking about our plans? As this person said, it would make big life decisions a whole lot easier. Yeah, I tell you, it would be so great, couldn't it, if you just sort of went, God, burrito or salad bowl? And just your app went, ding, oh, I'm having a salad bowl tonight. Cool. Uh, that, that would make life very easy. But that, that's not the way God has designed us. And it's not the responsibility God has given us. It's not the dignity that God has given us as human people. He actually enables us to live life to his glory, following his plans and pathways. Now, is it wrong, therefore, to hope for some more direct revelation? I don't want to say it's wrong at all. But I don't live in expectation of that, but I do live knowing that God can and might do that for me. I've never had that experience of God, uh, and, uh, but I have some friends who have had an experience like that of God, uh, but I, I don't therefore discredit their experience. But what I do know is what Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 tells me. And this is what Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 tells me. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. And you can go back through the Old Testament and see that God speaks through donkeys and bushes and people and all manner of different things, fires. Uh, but then it says, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And Jesus, who is the Son of God, his words uh, and his person is captured in God's word of God that we have here. I I think part of our problem, therefore, is actually that what we don't sort of come to grips with as Christian people is that you read the Old Testament, you see all these visions and words that come to people and you think, that's normal. That's the normal thing that might happen to God's people when in actual fact the very normal thing that happens for God's people is that the revelation comes to Ezekiel and Ezekiel then writes it down so 100,000 people can read it. Or a word of God comes to Isaiah and Isaiah then speaks that word to other people. Or a word of God comes to Moses and Moses walks down the mountain and says, right, you lot, God's got 10 things to say. Number one, him and him only. Number two. And and they're all listening going, oh, wow, here's a word from God. And then we all go, Bible, give me a word. In actual fact, the really normal life of Old Testament believers is to either have a word written down that they read or, or have a word spoken to them, which was God's word, that they could hear. Which is what happens to us tonight when Ian read the Bible. You heard the voice of God speaking directly to you. Uh, as we open the Bible ourselves, we can read the very words of God directly to you. And we actually, therefore, confusingly devalue the voice of God when we hanker after, that means desperately seek after, 
I use weird words sometimes, hey? Anyway, when we hanker after some spiritual experience, when all the time our Bible is closed and it's like God's going, <coughs> and if we just open it occasionally, as we heard last week, uh, there, there's been this study of thousands and thousands of Christian people done across Australia and I think America and the UK. And Christian people who read their Bible and pray more than four times a week, four times or more, testify in great numbers that they are growing in their knowledge of God and their love of God and their desire to follow God. And people who don't testify to the absence of God and the mystery of God. And I just wonder about that. I'm going to push you a bit further. Good. Because I agree with you. We should open our word, we should pray, and we should seek God. But as we do that, there's been a number of questions coming through, and this is my question too, is God, I think we get it, that we're not going to be picking between an ungodly option and a godly option. Most of the time when we're making these big life decisions, like whether you move from Canberra to Sydney to take a job here. <laughs> of course you, know, you do, Tim. Decision. Of course you do. <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're, you're picking between two good, godly options. Mm. And when you open the word, it's not going to go, hey, go to St. Ives. It's, or it's not going to say, hey, take that job or marry that person. Yeah. How do you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, sometimes there you can see, so I think what you're saying is sometimes you can see a direct thing. I, I should not have entered a pub on a fake ID for an evangelistic opportunity. I should have waited outside for the person to come back in. I'll just say that. <clears throat> anyway, moving on. Uh, but, but should I uh, ask Nikki out or should I ask Beulah out? <laughs> there was never a girl called Beulah, just so you know. Was there a girl? No, there was never a girl called Beulah. Uh, I, that, there, is, there is all sorts of wisdom involved in that sort of thing. As is, should I stay in Canberra? Should I move to Sydney? As is, should I choose engineering at university next year or medicine? etc., etc. Uh, but I think actually God's word speaks into every one of those circumstances in some way, shape, or form based on uh, us thinking through our own capacity, our own temperament, uh, who we are as people with reference to what God wants for us. He wants us to be people who will gather and worship together. If you are someone who's going to get into a Bachelor of Medicine and then have to study 24-7 for the whole of your life and never get to church for 14 years so you can be an ophthalmologist, then that career is not for you. You don't have the capacity for that because what God wants for you is to gather with his people. And so two options, but actually when you just sort of look more deeply and start thinking, what is it that God wants for me in the world? He wants you to honour him. He wants you to love him. He wants you to gather with believers. He wants you to engage in the scriptures and share his word with others. I think if you start laying those things out on a table, I think that starts to, ask, to answer questions for you. If me marrying this person is going to mean actually that I'm at church less and, and that person's not going to be an encouragement to me and I'm thinking full-time ministry and is this person thinking full-time ministry or are they thinking full-time something else? And, and, and so is that going to be helpful for me? And, and away you go. And, and part of actually Nikki and I being married was Nikki saying to me, are you thinking full-time ministry? Because I'm thinking full-time ministry. If you're not, you're not thinking full-time ministry, then I'm not thinking you. And I'm like, eh. <laughs> but then I was like, no, I'm thinking full-time ministry. And she's like, okay, then we should do this thing. And I'm like, yes, we should. This will be great. Uh, and, and so you can see there how actually 
the way God has equipped Nikki and I, the way that God has actually laid out the peace plans for the world, we could see being married together is actually going to enable God's plans to continue to be fostered through us. And, and that was with great joy. But, but reality is, at some point, you're just going to have to make a choice on some things. Burrito, bowl. Macca's, Thai. Schnitzel. Schnitzel. Fantastic. Yeah. So really, I, 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 what I'm hearing there is in the sense that overall the gospel and gathering with God's people is the thing that should really guide our, yeah, our there, overall decisions. There are paradigms in the scriptures for what a Christian person looks like and, and then you, you're just going to make a million decisions in your life every single day that are in light of the glory of God. If you just, I reckon if you keep the fruit of the Spirit in front of you all the time, that might help you make good decisions. Amen. Amen. I'm looking forward to hearing you on Sermon Extra. There's a lot more questions for you to cover. I'm looking forward to that too. Fantastic. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Nigel.